We are gathered here together today because Jesus is risen from the dead. There is a, a church visible all over the world because God is gathering together himself, a people for his, his worship, for the glory of his name, and for the joy of those of us who have been gathered together for him. One of the things I love and notice every week is how people sing with joy to the Lord. And I've mentioned this before, but we sing to the Lord because uh, he is alive. Um, if, if you are a Muslim, you must believe doctrinally that Allah is inherently unknowable. But for the Christian, we can know God because he has revealed himself to us in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the most amazing, amazing privilege. And uh, today... We are, as we sang, and it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. And today, we are going to be talking about Jesus, and I would love you to make the connection between our focus today on the truth, and, uh, and between the truth and the person and work of Jesus Christ. I, I couldn't believe my ears when I heard Eric reading out that scripture from Matthew sixteen twenty-six. Let me just read that again. Uh, Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And that is really, in, in many ways, part of the subject matter of what we're talking about today. I uh, read the other day a little, brilliant little quote. It says, um, those who die once uh, will not live. But those who die twice will live forever. Right. If you have your Bibles with you, would you please open with me to the short epistle of Jude. We are reading from verse 17 to 23. For those who, like me, have seldom visited this place, it's immediately before Revelation. Right. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This is our reading so far of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he impress it eternally upon our hearts. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you've gathered your church together for another Sunday and for giving us the privilege of life-giving worship. We thank you for the fellowship that is, is shared here and for the opening up of your word, and most of all, for your presence here with us today. 
Please would you bless the ministry of your perfect word. And may you be exalted by the proclaiming of your truth. In the mighty name of our Lord Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. Well, good morning, church, my family. And uh, to those of you who are here visiting with us today, a big welcome to you. Uh, The internet has brought with it a huge wave of blessings and positive opportunities, amongst which is the ability to observe and communicate with communities all over the world that that differ from ours in, in location and nature. And this has been a tremendous encouragement and tool for me in my spiritual growth because I've had access to the preaching, the teaching, the seminary materials, uh, small group stuff, books, all that kind of thing from all different places in the world and have been built up greatly by this blessing. But there is a particular grief that the internet has brought uh, to me. And that is, um, I think all of you who know me well know that the great concern of my life is that God be glorified by the faithful proclamation of his truth so that, the, that we can reach the lost with the truth of the gospel. And the thing that grieves me uh, over the last few years, looking at uh, this, the global state of the church and the internet, is that this battle for the truth is not where I thought it would be. I thought it would be with the um, people in the world who are haters of God, uh, people who openly deny the truth and blaspheme his name. But... The location of that battle is that it is primarily fought within the church. And this discouraged me greatly, as I'm sure it has many of you here today. We've seen the massive moral failure of people who have proclaimed to be preachers and teachers of the word, or Christians we know who have fallen away from the faith. But then something happened. By reading scripture... I realized a startling fact, that this has always been the case. The battle for the truth has always been within the church. But then I said, God, why? Why would you allow this to be the case? Why would you allow false teachers in your church? Why would you allow false believers to gather together each week and profess to be people called by you? As with all things, God has a plan and a purpose. We're going to look at that plan and a purpose very briefly today, but the main task that I'd like us to look, uh, look at today is to answer the question, how then, in these last days, knowing that the enemy is within the visible church, how do we go about life? So I've titled this, this sermon, The Call to Persevere, How to Live in the Days of Apostasy. And as we should do in all things, we are going to find an answer by looking in the counsel that God himself has given us in his word. So the epistle of Jude explains in the starting portion of the book the judgment that is to be coming upon false teachers. And then it provides an instruction to the church about how to deal with this, and that's what we'll be looking at today. And finally, there's a wonderful and it's one of the greatest benedictions and encouragements in the whole of the Bible that God will keep us and present us blameless and spotless on the day of Christ's return. So starting at verse 4, we are introduced to the fact that there are ungodly people who have crept into the church unnoticed. 
They are apostates who have left the faith, but yet remain in the building. It must have been quite strange to have been a part of the early church amid the, could you blank that out for a minute? Thanks. Uh, Amid the purity, the power, and the generosity of the young church, to hear the apostles prophetically declaring that people would abandon this truth that they had just received. That the church would twist scripture and that it would deny the gospel, that it would deny Jesus Christ. And yet, before the end of the first century, there were false teachers everywhere. Judas described these apostates for us in the early verses of this, of this book and warned that they even gather around the Lord's table with us. The words in uh, verse 12, it says, They are hidden reefs in your love feasts, and they feast with you without fear. Meaning, they have denied Christ, and yet they take the Lord's Supper. So they were everywhere. But Jude is, is not concerned with those outside of the church so much as those who are within the church. You see, we, those who openly mock Christ, those who deny that God came in the flesh, they're, they're obvious. They're obvious to us. It is the ones who stay hidden who are the great danger. They remain amongst us because of their subtlety, being careful to give the appearance of godliness. Meanwhile, they are walking corpses. And now we come to today's texts. It is a matter of how we can protect ourselves and the church and preserve the truth in times of apostasy. And there are three things that Jude would have us do. The first is to remember. The second is to remain. And the third is to rescue. So the first, remember. In verses 17 and 18, Jude says, but you must remember, beloved, remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. Jude is saying, don't be surprised. Remember, you were told that this would happen. And... And Paul gives us a similar warning in, Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. And at the end of 1 Timothy, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. Some have professed and gone astray from the faith. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, in the last days, difficult times will come because corruptors of the truth will come and they will tickle people's ears and turn them away from the truth and turn them to myths. And, and Peter, in Second Peter 2, they will secretly introduce damning and destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words, and their judgment from long ago is not idle, 
and their destruction is not asleep. And we can see this today. The sensuality and then the deceit and the ungodliness that creeps in. And now we come to part of the reason that God allows these apostates to remain hidden within the church. We can find the answer in the words of 1 John 2.19. They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. See, these scoffers will be exposed to demonstrate that God has preserved for himself a remnant. And Paul tells us in Acts 2, 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I didn't cease to admonish each one of you with tears. This is clearly concerning to Paul. As he said, he reminded them with tears for three years about the error that was drawing near. And so we would do well to ask God to put such a care and concern for the truth in our hearts that he would remind us to be watchful and vigilant and that he would give us discernment to burden us with a care for the truth. But we must remember that this care and concern for error is not a demonstration of God being nitpicky. It's a demonstration of God's care for us and his love for the lost. Because the truth is about who Jesus is and what he did. And so God caring about that is God caring about us and God caring about the lost. And we're not talking here when we talk about error. We're not talking about people having doctrinal perfection. Because there's only one who, who is doctrinally perfect, the word himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, even Satan knows the scriptures far better than any one of us. And who is he? What has he done? So it is not so much perfect knowledge of the scriptures, but it is obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Love and care and concern for the truth and how that affects us and the lost. But we have to ask, when did the church become so undiscerning and uncaring about error? We bought the secular lie that tolerance is love. We bought the lie that we must withhold and compromise on the truth in order to show love and care and compassion and concern. Love and care and compassion and concern is helping people see that they're under the judgment of God. And that the escape from that is in the person of Jesus Christ. And that they can experience the fullness of joy that comes from abiding in God's love. From knowing the peace and the joy that is in Jesus. We will give an account at the judgment day for the words that we have chosen. For the truth that we put forth. It will be weighed and tested. And that which is the truth will bring eternal glories with it and that which is chaff will just be burned up in the fire so why not rescue those who need rescuing with the truth of the gospel Paul is concerned that many begin in a solid foundation of the truth and yet over time they become led astray and they're led astray 
uh, because they're vulnerable to error. This is why we're commanded in Scripture to be wise as serpents, but gentle as doves. And we're told to be discerning. It's for our protection. So we should be extremely intolerant of falsehoods. Because if we are made new creatures, we have been given new desires. We will learn to love what God loves and hate what God hates. We do not hate people in error. We hate error which deceives people. Um, It should be evidenced, this regeneration, this new heart, in a care for God's truth. It should sicken us to hear false words about our Lord Jesus. It should bring us deep, deep, deep pain to hear the scriptures being manipulated and twisted. Jesus requires, as Eric was saying, this is amazing timing, Jesus requires simple and pure devotion and obedience. He's not interested in lofty speculations and endless myths and complicated dreams. He's interested in holiness. And therefore, we as a church should stress knowing and obeying his word. Because this is how Jesus rules in our hearts, through his word, by his spirit. When we store up his words in our hearts and in our minds, we can recognize, rebuke, and correct error in a way that honors God and loves people. But how do we recognize these apostates, these false teachers, these false believers? There will be a lack of fruit. If you can get close enough to their lives, you'll see a lack of holiness. You will not see a brokenness, a desire to reach the lost, a recognition of their need for a savior. You will not see humility. Instead, they will preach happiness before holiness. They will preach prosperity, not denial of self to follow Christ. They will preach about personal fulfillment instead of peace with God in Jesus Christ. They will preach about success instead of faithfulness. They will want to talk about freedom without bondage to righteousness. They won't preach from God's word. They will share their own worldly philosophies. They will preach of self-fulfillment instead of pouring oneself out in the service of others. There are many, many big names who we could name, many of whom you would recognize, but it's not just an international problem. Um, even in our, this region, in Durban, we have people who deny that everybody needs to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. They deny that hell exists. They are those who deny that God's word is perfect and is the ultimate authority over our lives. And these people are in leadership positions in churches. Last week, Eugene Peterson, who's the writer of a famous paraphrase book called The Message, capitulated on the definition of marriage. The next day, the major book publishing house who had initially published that threatened to pull all his materials from their shelves. And then the next day, he issued some kind of vague retraction on that statement without actually clearly um, saying that he was in the wrong. But it shouldn't surprise us at all 
Um, <clears throat> there are dangers everywhere, and we need to be extremely, extremely discerning. You can go to Kum Books, and half the stuff in there could lead you to hell. We need to be discerning. But if we want to grow in discernment, what do we need to do? We need to put ourselves in a place where we can be built up in the truth, where we can learn God's word through preaching and teaching, through studying the Bible, through relationships with those who are mature in the faith. And then Paul gives us, I mean, Jude starts giving us the strategy, the three things that we should do. So that was remember. The second one is remain. We must remain in the love of God. So when Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God, what does that mean? I thought Romans 8 says to me that nothing can separate me from the love of God. But Jude is definitely not telling you that you should keep yourself saved. We know this because verse 24, Jude tells us that it is God who is keeping us saved. He is the one who keeps us from stumbling. Our salvation is secure because it was authored and it will be perfected by God. So what does he mean then? He means remind yourself of God's love. And he means keep yourself in the blessings that God's love brings. It means stay in the blessings of obedience. Avoid the chastening of unpleasant discipline. How do we know this? Well, John 15, Jesus says, Just as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. And what does it mean to abide in his love? He answers shortly after, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. We don't obey God so that he will love us. We obey God because he has loved us. I'm not sure about you, but I would far rather remain in the place where the blessings of God's love are poured out on me, rather than to be in the place of Hebrews chapter 12 under his discipline. I want to submit to his will, to yield to his lordship, to walk in his ways, to know his word and obey his commandments. And yet I find myself consistently struggling to do so. I'm ripped in multiple directions in this war between the flesh and the spirit. But how then do we overcome and obey the Lord? Well, Jude gives us the answer. It's by building ourselves up in the faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. This means that I'm growing in the faith in a way that is empowered by the Spirit and is consistent with his will. And by praying in the Spirit, this is not talking about praying in tongues. That's not the context of this passage at all. It means to pray yielded to the Spirit's will, consistent with his will. But I find this difficult, and yet there's wonderful news. In Romans 8, 26 to 28, we see that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. See, we, we don't know how to pray as we should. We don't always want what God wants. I'm prone to de desire to um, follow the desires of the flesh, the sirens crying out for me to pay attention. We do know that God wants holiness and not sin. 
We know that he wants to be glorified and not dishonored. But I don't know exactly what to do in my daily decisions. I don't know his exact purpose in every single thing that happens. I don't know what, exactly what he's doing over here or exactly what he's doing over there. We don't know the will of, of the Father the same way that Jesus did. We don't know the future. We don't know what's just around the corner. Yet the Holy Spirit intercedes with us. This, for us, this is a truly incredible gift. The very Spirit of God is indwelling you and interceding for you. Deep in prayer. And it's not, not in words, not our words, not sounds made by us. It is with groanings too deep for words. There is a passion, a pain, a sympathy of the Spirit interceding on our behalf. The Spirit is praying for us constantly. And we have an advocate in heaven too, Christ Jesus, the great high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. This is the lifelong and daily reality of the Christian life, that the Spirit is interceding for us. Christ is interceding for us before God. And so we can pray boldly with confidence because this intercession has been made. We can pray, God, let your will be done in my life on earth as it is in heaven. Teach me to love your commandments. Teach me to live in holiness and gentleness. Give me the gifts of discernment and wisdom so that I may better serve others by conserving your truth. And then we can know that God will answer these prayers. This is what is being spoken on in, uh, in John 14, where if Jesus says, if we ask anything in his name, the Father will hear it and do it. That is, uh, in Jesus' name, that's what it means. It's not just something we tack on at the end of our prayers. It's the nature of our prayers. It's not just a phrase. It's the substance of what we are praying. Jesus' nature and will should form the basis of what we are praying, and then we will have confidence that God will surely do it. So therefore, we are to build ourselves up in the faith by praying in the Spirit so that we can be kept in the love of God in the midst of a time of great apostasy. We need to be resilient, knowledgeable of the truth, obedient to God's will, so that we can resist the temptations of the falsehoods that are promised to come our way, that Satan has laid out as a snare for us. And thirdly, rescue. The third step Jude would have us to take is to rescue those around us who are being deceived. There are three groups in the text today that are to be rescued. The first is those who are doubting. The second is those who are convinced. And then the third is those who are polluted. So this first group is the ones who are doubting. And Jude says we are to have mercy on them. What does that mean, have mercy on them? It means to present them with the truth. To be patient, to be forbearing. See, our tendency is that when we um, we see someone in the in the in the uh, camp of the spiritual terrorists, we often say, "Well, I want nothing to do with them. They clearly don't believe in the one true God. They're just getting what they deserve. We need to get rid of them and protect the church." 
How's that line? They're getting what they deserve. Why should we show mercy? Because if you're a believer, you're not getting what you deserved. And so that same extension, we should extend the same mercy that God has extended to us. See, Jude is saying we actually have an obligation to have compassion on them, to have mercy for them, to feel concerned for them. The word doubting here in Greek basically has the sense of uh, being confused, not um, knowing the truth, but doubting the truth. This is about actually being confused about what the truth is. They're the ones to whom they're the ones who are vulnerable to false teachers, and uh, they're e- so they're easy picking because it's often because of their, they're immature in the faith or ignorant of God's word, and and, uh, and especially those who isolate themselves from the church. They are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And they may have caught it up in one of many ways. They have may, may have watched what's supposedly called Christian TV. Uh, they may have picked something up on the internet or even a little one of those you know, memes, a picture with a phrase and whatever. Those, those can be deadly. Um, it could be through a book. As I've said, it's lethal in a bookstore. And it could just be through a personal relationship with a dangerous person. But these people are not anti-Christ. They are not anti-the gospel. They are just confused. They don't know what the the truth is. And so we should show them mercy by sharing it with them. The second group is those who are convinced. In verse 23, they are the ones who are to be saved by snatching them out of the fire. The use of the words here is really important. To snatch them out of the fire means that they are In the fire. They have fallen for the lies. They have believed the the falsehoods. The flames of hell are licking their backs. This is a rescue mission. Now, we cannot save anyone in the sense of regeneration. Only God can take out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. But we are the instruments that God uses to reach people through what's, what's called in the Bible the foolishness of preaching. We are partners with God as his means, as the tools he uses to reach people in danger. And so by rebuke and a call to repentance, we are the means by which God may save those who are perishing. Now, this is no gentle exercise They are captive to a stronghold of the mind. And we need to smash those false ideologies with the truth. The good news is, though, in Islam, those who ultimately will not repent should be destroyed. Right? Convert or die. But our weapons are not of flesh and blood. But they are spiritual weapons. They are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Our war is not against the flesh and the blood. It is against the powers and the principalities of darkness. They are not carnal weapons. See, the gospel smashes the fortress of lies and it plunders the prison to release the captives. They must be reached urgently, lest they be lost forever. 
This has the sense of confrontation of the violent meeting of spiritual powers. But the good news is this. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? You see, this really hits home to me. The week before last, my hairdresser died. Uh, He was a very interesting man who had been taught the basics of the faith growing up, but um, had departed to all sorts of spiritual mysteries, denying that Christ was God in the flesh. And he knows I'm a preacher because I often used to go to the Woolies Cafe there before I was preaching the day before and um, whatever, and I'd time my haircuts with that or whatever. And so I'd have my Bible on my laptop and notes and things. And so he'd often ask me about what I'm preparing for my next preach and that kind of thing. So we had some conversations about God, but I didn't respond how the Holy Spirit through Jude has taught us to. I simply shared some things with him and left it at that. But he needed to be snatched out of the fire. He needed to have stronghold smashed. He needed the full weight of the gospel presentation to deliver him from the hands of the devil. And then the week before last, he took his own life. And I had not snatched him from the fire. It's a weight that causes me great grief. And it's pressed me deeply into desiring to obey this command. That we are to snatch people from fire. So let us all feel the gravity of this command. And know that we can have confidence in doing so. Because the gospel is the power of God and salvation. And finally, there is a third group. There are those in verse 23. It says, On others have mercy with fear, hating even the garment that's polluted by the flesh. We need to be careful when we're dealing with these people. Uh, To reach them, we need to go in close. But it's risky because they're so deeply deceived. Um, And they're usually excellent at persuading others. They're brilliant at explaining their their motives for their beliefs and persuading you of exactly what they believe. They're usually academically incredible. And it's because they're demonically empowered in what they're doing. Their persuasion comes from demonic power. And that is no match for any human power. It is only the truth of God that can overcome it. So being near them is dangerous. Don't do it by yourself. Don't do it by yourself. Have accountability. Have an elder supervising that relationship and even those meetings if possible. Don't think that you are powerful enough on your own. Yet, we must go to dangerous places so that God can reach dangerous people. But we must do so with fear and with caution lest we ourselves be deceived. So as we move to conclude, we are living in the last days. The last days is a eschatological end times phrase which started with the coming of Christ into the world and will end with his return. 
They are filled with an increasing evil and apostasy. They are days of spiritual confusion and spiritual apathy. They are filled with false teachers and false believers. But there's always been a remnant. There has always been a true people preserved for God, by God. They are people who earnestly contend for the faith, as Jude encouraged us, uh, encouraged us to do in the opening few verses of, of this book. Um, the truth has been under assault in every generation from the start of its delivery. But the truth has been contended for in every generation as well. And it is ultimately that contention for the faith that will be victorious at the return of Jesus Christ. Let us be those who care for God's truth. Let us be those who are vigilant and who are watchful in these last days. In my prayer is that we would be known as a people who care for the truth. That leads to a brokenness, a gentleness, a mercy towards people who are in need of it. So I encourage you to let Jesus be glorified through the preservation of the truth. With those who are most dangerous, be careful that you are not led astray. With those who are deceived, snatch them from the fire. And with those who are confused, in the words of 2 Timothy 2.25, with gentleness, correct those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And we as Christians ought not to be discouraged. We ought to have great hope, because we know that when Jesus Christ returns, that the truth will be fully and finally revealed and settled in him. The deceivers will be discarded forever, and believers will abide in true worship and intimacy with God for eternity. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you that you gave us your word. We thank you that you opened our eyes to the truth. I pray that you'd cause us all to grow in discernment and care for your truth. Father, please encourage us and give us boldness to contend to the, for the faith and to bring you glory and to save the lost. In Christ's name alone, we are able to ask these things. Amen. As a parting benediction, I read to you the closing verses of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.